inspiration, success stories, expert advice, strategies, new ideas, and amazing conversations. Everything you need to become a great speaker. This is Oscar Santolaya, and welcome to Time to Shine. Hello, and thank you for joining today. Today, we're going to talk about the year 2016, the good and the bad, and what can we learn from what happened this year. For that, we have a very special guest. We have Jim Harvey. Jim Harvey has built three consulting businesses from startup to, to sale since 1992. Jim works with blue chip firms from all sectors of the economy and all over the world, though he is English and, in, and based near London, for which he often apologizes. He is a regular speaker and commentator on consulting, presenting, and pitching for businesses, write speeches for presenters, politicians, and salespeople, coaches and speakers, and runs training courses all over the world. He loves his work and is a proud husband and father of three boys. Hi, Jim. Welcome. Hi. <laughs> Welcome. Thank you very much for asking me, Oscar. It's great to be here. It's great talking with you, Jim. And yes, I'm going to talk about what happened in, in 2016. And I will uh, ask a question that I don't do it often. Could you tell me for you what was the best speech or talk of this year? Yeah, it's an interesting one, really. I mean, there have been a lot. It's been a momentous year politically in sort of major blocks in the US, the end of Obama and the beginning of Trump, of course. In the UK, the end of well, the European Union for the UK, mm. um, and in Europe, great political and other instability because of the massive problems in the Middle East. Um, but for me, I've chosen a speech by a man that I loathe, um, and it's by a guy called Boris Johnson. For those people living around the world, um, he is now the Foreign Secretary of the United Kingdom, mm -hmm. and he led, he was the rhetorical heart of the campaign for the UK to leave behind 50 years of stability and vote to leave the European Union. And he made a speech on the evening before the vote mm -hmm. on television with 15 million people watching where he, I think, won the argument for the side that won the referendum the following day. So it's Boris Johnson for his appalling but brilliant speech in support of leaving the European Union. Mm -hmm. And if you can pick one, something particular, why this, this speech was so um, effective? Yeah, we'll get on to it. I mean, basically, mm -hmm. the absolute ignoring of uh, facts um, and the focus on their key message that they knew by that time was winning the argument, which was take back control. Talking to a very angry and dissatisfied audience mm -hmm. about everything that Europe had done that was bad for them in the United Kingdom. And he said, this is our opportunity to take back control. That was his ending line. That was his big idea. That was the theme around us, which the speech was woven. And that was what was particularly brilliant about it that lots of us can learn from as well. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yes. And you have actually chosen one, one speech that is, well, 
somehow it's part of the the main thing uh, I wanted to discuss with you that mm. um, that we saw. I think we agree many that there was a there was a main phenomenon in 2016 about public speaking and, and rhetoric yeah. and how, yeah. what could you say? Yeah, I mean, I think it's one of those things that that um, essentially. If we go back to, and I know you've, you know, your brilliant podcast, you've had some great people, some people that I know, and some people, you've had John Zimmer and mm -hmm. Florian Mook talking recently about Aristotle yes. and Logos, Pathos, and Ethos, and Story. And I think Aristotle defined the term so that Logos, a speech, a great speech for him has to have Logos, a logical argument going through the middle, Pathos, an emotional content that appeals to the audience, and Ethos, credibility of speaker and of ideas. Essentially, Aristotle defined a particular type of rhetoric, which he called sophistry, uh, which is a speech without credibility, without logic, that appeals to the emotions. And this was an example of sophistry in the extreme. And it's the, so I think if we look for a theme with Trump, with, uh, with Brexit, with all of these apparently populist movements that are springing up around the world, they are driven by this idea of sophistry, appealing to powerful negative emotions in a dissatisfied audience and asking the audience to ignore facts, to ignore history, to ignore danger and take a particular route. Sophistry is the, the thing that we can learn. So that, that was the... Um Uh, the main element that was used, you said uh, yep. Aristotle already defined that. By the way, yep. did, did Aristotle use it? Was he uh, in favor of that? No, he wasn't, but he realized that it existed and he mm -hmm. realized, in fact, there was the group, there was a little group of, you know, if you imagine Aristotle as this fountain of knowledge and experience, mm -hmm. that um, there was a group of students of rhetoric that grew around him mm -hmm. that took this idea and became the sophists. They were a little rock and roll gang, a breakout gang that saw, that tried to find out how far they could take this fact-free, emotion-rich um, uh, approach to communication. So no, he was, he was against it because he thought that logos, pathos, and ethos were the basics of a, you know, essentially Greek society was, was a rational society. Um, so sophistry represented a dangerous and unpredictable change from that sort of very thoughtful society where they, they honored research and science and thought and philosophy. So I don't think you'd find Aristotle wearing a sophist's <laughs> t-shirt, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and the other, uh, the other term that we have used, we, mm. we, Uh, we have heard and read in, in articles to describe this phenomenon has been uh, mm. the post-truth, right? Yeah, exactly. And I think post-truth, it's an interesting phrase, isn't it? Because I think, I mean, something we'll come on to later, I'm sure. I think, what is the truth? You could have a massive philosophical debate now about what the truth is. Mm -hmm. And I think, depending on your political position and your the way that you see the world, You will take a fact and turn it into the truth. Now, for my view is that the truth is a very difficult political concept, but facts are provable. Okay, And mm. what you do is you turn facts into truth with politics. And I think that's what's happened here. Lots of people are using the same facts in 
absolutely opposite ways. You know, an economic fact about growth in the UK since we joined the European Union in 1975, for example, is being used by one side completely as a reason why it's been the source of all of the UK's wealth and success since then, and by the other side as a reason why it's the the, the reason we should be leaving now. It's been, so I think post-truth is an interesting one. I think, you know, there are facts and facts aren't truth. I think truth is about interpretation. But I do think what they refer to is the idea that these massive movements of people where the status quo actually has been swept away. So, and, you know, they call it the death of liberalism. You know, so Hillary Clinton being swept away by a guy that looks like a 1970s porn star, you know, retired. (laughs) Um, He does. I was thinking about that today. He looks like a porn star from the 1970s that spent the last 30 years lying on a sunbed in in Miami. It's unbelievable. But, you know, so so actually that in the in the US and then in the UK, the idea of Europe as, as us being a part of Europe. Again, the status quo for the last 50 years has been swept away. So I think status quo has gone. I think facts have been used in a really, really interesting way. And truth, if ever we had it, I think to some degree the post-truth label is created by people like me who wish that it hadn't happened. And the only way that we can explain it is by pretending that the people that voted for it are idiots or the people that represented it are liars. And I don't think it's as simple as that. Yeah, it's just also going to extremes, right? That's saying, I have yeah. the truth. Everybody can say that. I mean, you know, That's exa- it's mm-hmm. exactly right. And I think for me, whilst you know, you can probably tell that my, my sympathies would tend to lie with the liberals, with the status quo, I think if I make the mistake of assuming that Donald Trump is a liar and that Boris Johnson is a liar and that everybody that voted for both of those people is an idiot, then I am, I'm an idiot as well. <laughs> I think, you know, genuinely, I think what we should learn from it, and I think that for me has been really interesting. What can we learn from all of these massive things this year that will help us argue more effectively for what we believe in, whether it's a business, whether it's a product, whether it's an idea, whether it's a belief, how can we argue for those beliefs with more power and persuasion? I think there's lots to learn from this great year. So what could, what would you say if you can summarize the, the lessons from what happened in 2016? Yeah, okay. Well, I mean, I was thinking about it and, and like, you know, being a Being a good boy, you know, I I listened to lots of your podcasts from the last year about storytelling and about Aristotle and about themes and about visual thinking and change and all of those things. And I just put a few things together. So, I mean, I'd like to start with the idea of change. Mm -hmm. Okay, there's a there's a um, something called the change equation. I don't know if you've ever ever come across that before, Oscar. Have you come across it? No, no, sure, yeah, yeah. I mean, it, I, it's something that I'd heard of, but I was doing my research, and it was by Gleicher, Beckard, and Harris, who were three um, psychologists that work in the area of organizational change. And they came up with this, it's a really interesting idea, actually, um, an equation that basically is a mathematical way of predicting whether change will be successful. So, and it goes like this. There are, take 
there are three things. Dissatisfaction. How dissatisfied is this group of people now with the way things are, i.e. the status quo? Then, vision. How clear is the vision of the thing that would replace the status quo? And then thirdly, how clear are the first steps? What do we actually have to do next in order for us to move from where we are now to where we want to be in future? So dissatisfaction, the vision of what's possible, and then the first steps. And the change equation says if dissatisfaction multiplied by the vision of this brave new world, multiplied by the clarity of the first steps that we have to take to get there, if they combined are greater than the resistance to this change, then change will happen. And I think if you look at that, it's really, really interesting. Let's have a look at Brexit first. Let's look at Brexit and Trump. Dissatisfaction. There was a massive group of dissatisfied voters at the heart of the UK and the US that were unhappy with the status quo. And what did the what did the winners do? They understood this dissatisfaction better than anybody else and they made it worse. So if you look at this post truth thing if you look at all of them, I don't want to get political, but if you look at all of the the key stats about crime and about prosperity and about um, educational standards and about incomes, you would actually find that all of the things that Donald Trump was saying about how crime is rising and there's chaos on the streets and immigrant it just wasn't there was no there were no facts broadly that supported that case but because people were dissatisfied with because it felt like this going back to the sophistry thing make people feel stuff but because people felt after you know two after eight years of economic challenges since the recession they didn't feel like they were doing well all trump had to do was share stories and examples of where people like them the ordinary joe had been screwed And so they did a fantastic job of understanding how dissatisfied middle America was and making it worse by telling stories. And we'll come on to storytelling a bit later, I'm sure, to make it worse. Then, of course, that's dissatisfaction. So the audience, the voters were really, really dissatisfied. Same in the UK. You know, for whatever reason, people are see things changing we've had eight years of austerity post the crash there's less government spending on housing and on roads and on schools and whatever and people's salaries haven't gone up in real terms for eight years they're slightly poorer than they were and we've got lots of people working in this country that weren't born here and you add all of those things together and you make it worse by pointing to immigrants, by identifying places where governments have wasted billions of pounds, identifying the fact that we have some people that come into this country from other places and commit crimes and don't get 
and then you look at our national health service and our hospitals. So you, basically, these people that were elected did a fantastic job of making the electorates feel really bad about the status quo. Then what they had to do was create an idea of what this best possible future. And of course, both Brexit and um, they did a fantastic job of saying, what if? What if we controlled our borders, our schools, our hospitals, our economy, our law, our part? Take back control became was the was the phrase that in the UK Brexit used to say if we this is the thing that we have to do if we take back control implicitly they never said it directly but they said if we do this then everything else will be better so they created this vague notion and they used of course what did they do they used abstracts like freedom and sovereignty and control and they don't mean anything but to a dissatisfied audience control sovereignty ownership pride they mean everything because everybody can hang their own dissatisfaction on one of those hooks and go yeah if we take back control then so just take a really simple thing lots of examples from the european union of regulation so you know the shape of a banana for example apparently and it's not true but apparently the european union regulates on the shape and size of a banana <laughs> that can be sold in the united kingdom and so what the Brexit, what Boris Johnson did in one in his speech that I'm talking about, he mentioned this lie. It wasn't true. He just said, why should somebody in Brussels, so the enemy, mm -hmm. the foreigners, tell us about the bananas that we can buy in Britain? And the <laughs> audience, I mean, literally, the audience stood up and applauded at this point. Why? Because that little lie represented a truth that this audience really believed that the reason we were in the state that we were in was because other people, foreigners, strangers, French, German, Brussels, you know, Belgians. And if we get control back from those people, then our country will be great again. Now, what was Trump's slogan? <laughs> Basically, make America great again. What does it even mean? It doesn't matter. But what it offers is hope, a vague hope. And often that hope is backwards looking, a nostalgia for a past that's gone. So for all of these, you know, make America great again. He didn't have to, and he never at any stage had to say anything about how he would do it, apart from build a wall, send the Mexicans home. <coughs> take away regulation, stop the liberals, stop the elites, get political correctness. So one of the things that really worked for Trump was he made a villain of this idea of political correctness. As if that, the ability not to use words like he used in the election campaign, was a reason why America was in apparently the state that it was in. Because we can't talk like human beings. We have to talk in this liberal, elite, political, correct way. You know, it's, it's it was brilliantly done. So, going back to the change equation, they made people even more dissatisfied with where they were sitting, and they created this vague vision of what could be possible in the next 
possible in the best of all possible worlds make america great again have the uk control its borders and its laws and its finance okay and the last thing of course is first steps what is the first step that we can take as a people to making america great again or taking back control of britain and of course, it's really easy. The first thing you have to do is vote for Donald or vote for Boris. And that was a beautiful, beautiful example for me of how this change, moving away from the status quo and moving into an uncertain new future, how the argument was won. And what can we learn about that from, you know, in terms of rhetoric and as salespeople and speechwriters is, we should never underestimate the power of vagueness and a positive future. And we should never underestimate the power of fear of where we are now. You know, so make, if, if you want to sell a product, understand your audience and absolutely make sure that you can make them see how where they are now is not perfect. It kind of flies in the face a little bit of what we've been told to do before. Yeah. <clears throat> and actually, maybe business decision makers are more rational than um, voters in a national election, although often there's much, much less resting on it. But my, my first kind of lesson is never underestimate the emotional power of dissatisfaction and hope yes i i definitely agree with that uh, there was a lot of underestimating the <laughs> the opponent in mm. everywhere that's, that's what uh, but, I felt. I, you, but you're right you're absolutely right it's one of the things I've, i've sort of thought about here is i think where you could criticize the people that lost uh clinton and the democrats in in the u.s and the you know, the government and the people that wanted to stay, we totally, we didn't under understand how bad people thought things were today. And part of that is because it wasn't that bad for us. Yeah. You yeah. Know, so some, some so, uh, lack of empathy also. Exactly. A lack of empathy. And mm. I think, you know, we come back to, you know, come back to storytelling as well. And you think what Trump and what, Boris Johnson did brilliantly is they seemed to empathize with the hopes of everyday Americans. So if you think about stories, I was listening to, uh, to Florian's stuff the other day about seven, um, uh, things rules. that we can, yeah, golden rules of storytelling from Aristotle and stuff like that. And you think about it in terms of what he was talking about characters, Trump, And Johnson made heroes of the ordinary working person in their country. They said, it's hard for you now. You've had no money. You know, you're worried about crime and you're worried about your children. And we understand that and we know why things are getting worse. And so they got the attention of a dissatisfied powerful group of people that felt forgotten and they used it you know you're the forgotten voices of america or britain they empathized brit or seemed to brilliantly they made heroes of the ordinary working person in and not working person so in in, in the uk <laughs> it was the older people the retired people as well that felt forgotten and left behind um 
Yeah, so they understood that. And then the other character, if we think about villains, the baddies, I mean, just the list of baddies that they used. I mean, liberals, immigrants, politically correct, Mm. (laughs) excuse me, the status quo, elites, bankers, shady business people, security services, politicians, just experts in the uk they managed to make villains of experts and they were and experts was anybody that had anything to say factually (laughs) that disagreed with the idea of brexit being a brave new world for everyone to go to in the same way that trump anytime anybody in the media what did he do classic um ad hominem attacks a classic Mm. um rule of kind of logical fallacy or or an example of logical fallacy bad argument attack the person undermine the media crooked hillary you know he didn't believe it they were friends with the clintons before and they'll be probably not friends with the clintons again but just this nasty easy and i must admit it's, it's interesting just for me I went to Vegas uh, a week before the American election, mm-hmm. and uh, I began to realise that that Hillary wasn't going to win. Probably when I was in a taxi, I was in a, I was in a, an Uber taxi with a guy, uh, a really nice guy, picked me and a friend up and drove us around Vegas early in the morning, and we were chatting about this. And we got to the bit. I said, "You know, what do you think about the election?" And he went, uh, he said, "Do you know what?" He said, uh, I just really, I just can't, I don't like Trump, but I just can't see myself voting for Hillary. And I said, okay, why is that then? He said, well, you know, it's the Israelis. I went, what? He said, yeah, it's the Israelis. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry, I, what do you mean about the Israelis? He said, well, you know, she's letting all these Israeli immigrants in and they just want to overthrow democracy, don't they? And he said, oh, no, 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 I don't mean Israelis, I mean Muslims. Oh, <laughs> oh. Right, and you just look at it, and I tried not to look at my friends sitting in the back seat. This was a decent guy, okay? He wasn't stupid, but what he'd taken on was this idea of the foreign enemy. Mm. And whether it was the Israelis or whether it was Muslims, it didn't really matter to him. Mm. There was this legion of people that wanted to come to the States and take away, and he felt that Donald would defend him and his family from those people better than Hillary. And I just thought, Trump's going to win. Yeah. Trump is going to win. And, uh, you know, and again, you have to praise this, this idea. If we, those two storytelling characters that are really important, heroes and villains, mm. right? They made heroes of the voters and very few politicians really do. They treat the voters like, you know, a tool. Um, but Trump and the Brexit may built them up, said, you are the forgotten people. You understand you made America great and you've been forgotten. You've been downtrodden. You have been overlooked. You have been undermined. You get your chance to take control away from the elites and the blah and the this. And it worked. So you had a raging, <coughs> heroic class of people that wanted to save the country against this legion of villains. And it was brilliantly done. Brilliantly done. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I agree with that. It was um, 
they work a lot on that and they they use the tools that they are available as you say they are from the aristotle's time so they Ex- just use exactly the tools right. they did and if you think about it it's exactly what steve jobs did with microsoft mm-hmm. in the early days you, i don't know if you remember it but i do the 1984 advert, oh, yeah. i was a student where it was basically saying microsoft is the evil empire and IBM, you know, yes. and, yeah, 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 and IBM. It's the evil empire, and all we have to do, making heroes of the users, making a cult, making them, yeah, active participants in a story of triumph and a change to the status quo. It's brilliantly done, <laughs> and I think that. Yeah, you think about marketing, really, because essentially, what have these two campaigns done? The Trump campaign in the US, they have marketed brilliantly. And what is what is marketing? It is basically compet- gaining competitive advantage by understanding your marketplace better than anybody else. The reason they won is because they understood the dissatisfaction, mm-hmm. the hopes and the dreams of the voters so well that they knew they didn't have to offer a policy. They just had to say, just vote for us and it'll all be all right. And they did. And for that reason, if you, I'm honest, the, the the status quo deserved to lose because we were complacent, arrogant. Maybe we were some of those things that they said that we were because we didn't understand how. And so if you don't understand, you can't create messages that resonate with that audience. Mm-hmm. So all of the campaign, the, you know, the Clinton campaign and the the stay in the eu campaign in the uk was basically it'll be all right things are a bit Mm -hmm. bad at the moment but there's some things that we can do that's not inspiring is it (laughs) that makes the that that disempowers the audience and basically says look shut up bend over it's going to be uncomfortable for a you know a few more years but it'll be all right in the end from a from a group of politicians that since 2008 have lost complete credibility now whatever that they could actually have done after the crash and who was responsible for that is a different, you know, is a different argument. But these guys, Trump and um, Brexit, they won the argument because they understood their buyer, their fears and their hopes and dreams better than anybody else. And I think, again, for me, that's a competitive advantage for a speaker. The better you understand the real fears, the uh, the way that these people articulate their hopes and fears and what's wrong today and where they hurt and where the itch is and what's changed, the better you understand that and you listen to it, the more you can position a message to meet those fears and to raise their aspirations. Because not every, you know, the people that voted for Trump aren't evil. You know, I'm sure some of them are, a very small percentage of them. And the people that voted for Brexit aren't evil. Just that they genuinely think that that is for the better. You know? Powerful. Yeah, yeah. So that was the first thing. And actually, because in both, if we go back to the change equation, we've got dissatisfaction. They were very dissatisfied, mm-hmm. the audience. Vision, they created this simple vision of how things could be better. Make America great again, take back control of the UK. And then the first step, vote for Trump, vote for Brexit. Actually resistance there wasn't that much resistance people went okay i will (laughs) tick and they've done it now and you know people they weren't neither were 
landslide majorities, but it was a significant step away from the expected. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. And you mentioned this change equation that you have um, put it in a very easy way to understand how it uh, worked out yeah. for this situation mm. in 2016. And yeah. tell me, this: what is the origin of this change equation? What is usually what is usually applied? What is usually um, analyzed? Yeah, well, usually, again, let's say there's an organization wanting to uh, mm-hmm. wanting to change the way that it works. I mean, they would look at all kinds of things. Um, I mean, they would essentially analyze the, the the status quo to find out who was dissatisfied with what and why, and then create a vision and assess the vision as to how mm-hmm. well it took away the dissatisfaction. And actually, they'd look at, you use it as a planning tool, really. You'd say, if you want to sort of support a change, how dissatisfied are people? And you know that if people aren't dissatisfied, then you have to build a really strong vision as to why the future mm-hmm. will be better. Because if you can't do that, if they're not dissatisfied, it's going to be really hard to get them sure, to change. Sure. And then actually, if you've got people that are sort of a, a little bit dissatisfied, you've got a really clear vision. How can we make people believe that this is going to happen? And that's where you think about your first steps. So in most sort of pieces of organizational change, for example, mm-hmm. you want to make it really easy for people to get on the journey. So first do this, then do that, then you'll see that, but actually start people moving forwards. It's like a call to action, basically, in a in a sales presentation. You could use this, and people do, almost as a perfect outline for a sales presentation. You know, mm-hmm. how dissatisfied is the audience with what they've got now? How clearly do I tic- do I articulate the benefits or the vision of what they could do with my product or my service? And what are the things? What What am I going to close with? What do I want them to do next? Am I going to get them to take a product demonstration or a test drive, or are we beyond that stage, or are we not even there yet? And then the idea of thinking is, you know, if all of that overcomes the resistance that is in the audience, then the likelihood is that they will sign on the dotted line and buy that piece of paper. So the same can be that has been applied in politics. This uh, 2016 can be applied also in I think in so. sales. And if you look at it, I was thinking about Airbnb as well. So mm-hmm. a much more modern example. Who knew that millions of people all around the world were dissatisfied with hotels? I didn't. Mm. You know, in fact, what had happened is the hotel market had changed. So you get lots of really good quality, cheap hotels from pods in Japan through to easy hotels in the UK and Europe for $35 a night, for example, in a major city. But who knew that there were billions of people around the world that wanted a different experience, Mm -hmm. apart from Airbnb? Something in them understood that people wanted to travel, the millennials wanted to travel in a different way, to stay in a friends what if you what if there was a stranger that you'd never met in a mm. city that you wanted to go to that would open their home and their hearts to you what if what if what if so i think it's a brilliant example from the marketing world of what what have airbnb done they've created this beautiful idea of a community 
where you can go and stay with friends that you haven't yet met. In, and I, I'm doing this work for them, actually, if they steal this idea. But that you can stay with a friend that you haven't met in a city mm-hmm. that you've never been to and stay as if you were part of the community, not a stranger, staying in some kind of plastic American-owned hotel chain that was just the same wherever you mm-hmm. went. That's a fantastic. So what have they done? They've identified some dissatisfaction. They've created a beautiful vision of what it's like, which is represented perfectly in all of their print and their media adverts. And how easy is it? All you have to do is download the app. Give us your credit card, and you can go to Jakarta or Johannesburg or New Jersey next week. It's fantastic. Mm-hmm. Well, they've yeah. done exactly. They've done exactly the same thing, haven't they? Yes. <laughs> also, they that's discovered. A sorry, excellent go on, go on. example. Excellent example. In the Airbnb for same change yeah. equation. Yes. Exactly. You know, and who knew? Apart from those clever people at Airbnb who are now multi-billionaires, mm-hmm. and congratulations to them because they found a gap in the market that people i've done it i've done airbnb and i've stayed in an apartment in barcelona um that was beautiful and in the heart of el gotico the old part of the city and it felt like you lived in the (laughs) city it was exactly it was fantastic so well done to them and i think that's the challenge for all of us you know whatever we're communicating how well do we really do we really understand them how good is our data? How good is our market? It can get awfully technical about, you know, about society groups and A, B, and C and this, but hopes and dreams and real fears and how our product can help or our service, you know, I, I think most of us pay lip service to it. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. It's a, it's a great lesson and it's, uh, it's a good, this change equation, I think, is something that I have to putting on my mind also to, to put it in practice in, in yeah it is if we if we think about another um bit of sort of speech writing for example this idea of a big idea that at the heart of great speeches is a simple single point that sort of encapsulates the whole speech forever so of course martin luther king's i have a dream speech obama's whole campaign of um, 2008 which was yes we can the idea of hope triumphing over you know paralysis um both of these campaigns had a beautiful hook like a chorus of a song that encapsulated everything that was contained within the debate and in for trump it was make america great again so if somebody criticized trump he'd say why don't you want to make america great again do you hate this country all i want to do is make this country what it was okay brilliant make america great again and the idea of take back control the being able to to simplify a hugely complex debate with massive ramifications to that single phrase take back control what are you trying to do take back control of the economy take back control of politics take back control (laughs) of our finances take back control of the justice system take back control of immigration take back it was just brilliantly done can you remember the losing side slogans. I can't. 
I have no idea what Clinton stood for. Yeah. <laughs> and I've stronger you know, together, but it, it doesn't. Oh, was it was it stronger together? <laughs> yeah. You can Jack hardly Clinton's, remember that. Are you really strong? It's like the uh, so what. Because the, the implicit thing, but you can imagine that, can't you? If it was stronger together, if you're talking to an audience who don't feel strong, hmm. who think that we're weaker than we ever were, it's a then <laughs> yeah, stronger together means less than nothing, doesn't it? Which is really, it just becomes one of those vague slogans. Whereas when Trump says, make America great again, the, the crowd roars yeah. because that's what they want. It means that's what they want because they know in their own minds, post-truth, post-fact, that America's not great anymore. You know? And when Boris Johnson finishes his speech um, – at the you know the evening of the uh, the evening before the election with the line of take back control the audience roars because they don't believe that they have control of anything these days i mean literally they believe they have control of nothing the health service it's run for other people and not for us you know oh, it's just very very interesting and i was thinking you know so basically what can heartbroken liberals like us I, I'm, I'm, I don't know if you are oscar but let me just use that sort of uh, collective noun but what can heartbroken liberals do uh, to get over this well the first thing you've got to do is get over it and realize you lost for a reason and the reason that you lost was because you didn't communicate your ideas with any real belief empathy or passion and, you know, you think about it, any great speech or sales pitch or whatever, if you take though, if you take belief away, you've got nothing. If you take empathy away, <clears throat> you're insulting. And if you take passion away, well, you've got a brochure, haven't you? you know? <laughs> and so I think, what can we do? <clears throat> we have to rediscover. If you want to win an argument, you have to rediscover the truth of the argument for you. And I think we'd forgotten it. I think in Europe, I mean, you you know this, of course, excuse me a second, that in Europe, where did this liberal consensus that led to the European Union and partnership and economic, um, economic collaboration, where did that come from? It came out of a war, a European war that set fire to the world and killed 100 million people, killed 15 million Germans and 20 million Russians and 5 million Frenchmen and 1 million UK. And, you know, out of that chaos came consensus. And now, 70 years later, I think people have genuinely forgotten the roots of this European, this pan-European collaboration. I think the only country that really remembers it is Germany. And they remember it, you know, so I think all of this stuff about it's, you know, stronger together to use Hitler, that people have forgotten why it was important. So it just seems like ridiculous liberal indulgence. Why should we care about what happens in Germany when we can't afford to send our children to school in this country? But we have to remember some of those things and we have to go back to our roots and start talking with pride about a higher purpose. We have to, you know, we have to use the sophist approach and say there is something beautiful and dignified and great about working together as many countries for the prosperity security and happiness of 400 million people you know well, there was none of that there was not an ounce of 
spiritual, philosophical, joyful expression of the possibilities of what we were doing. It was all factual. Mm. Well, our GDP's grown 5% year on year since 1975. So that's what we have to do. We have to start using some of those tools that we used so well. Again, you know, and in business terms, maybe we have to understand our customers as well as Airbnb do. And maybe we have to understand that people don't want to buy a clean bed and, a, and, a, and cable television. Maybe when they travel, what they want to do is feel like they've been to a country that they've never been before and taken a little bit away, a little bit, a bit of it home with them. Um, and you know, that, so for me, there's something about what if we boil all of this down to what can we really learn from what's happened in 2016? I think we can learn a few things. The, let's be reminded that pathos is hugely important. And let's remember that the expression of that pathos requires empathy with the audience, understanding of their fears and their hopes and dreams, and our ability to articulate our vision in a way that appeals to their fears and also to their hopes and dreams, to put more emotion in. I th we shouldn't forget facts. You know, we shouldn't forget reasoning. We shouldn't forget data. But as we all know, that's only part of the argument. And I think the reason why 2016 is a really interesting year for all of, for, for, you know, talk about rhetoric and speech making and all that kind of stuff is because maybe it's the year that complacency and assuming that we know what the audience thinks and feels goes out the window. Maybe we have to start again. So the year of complacency. <laughs> maybe. Yeah. I hadn't thought about that, but maybe it is. Mm. <clears throat> complacency of the of the of the you know the people that have ruled the world for the last 35 years i mean that for me one of the other things that you said was um you know think about a quote well there's two things one of the things that i really really despise actually is that for all of this stuff that we've talked about the positives of Trump and Brexit, we should also remember the negatives. We should also remember that inexcusably both campaigns used foreigners, immigrants, refugees, migrants, minorities, deliberately targeted and used them as a way of making people more scared and more dissatisfied. So in the US, the president-elect actually said that Mexicans were rapists and actually said that we should build a wall to keep them out and that they will pay for it and actually said that Muslims should be banned from entering the country. Why? deliberately to make people more scared than they were and than they should have been. And in the UK, in the Brexit campaign, we should never forget that these people deliberately chose to identify, to confuse migrants with immigrants, with illegal immigrants, with terrorists, with people with brown skins, with, they deliberately, uh, there, is an, there is an advertisement that went on television here for five nights before the 
the post, which basically showed an old white British lady coughing in her daughter's, coughing up blood in her daughter's arms, going to the hospital, and the screen split in two before Brexit, essentially full of strangers. And after Brexit, full of English people. Before Brexit, she's still waiting three hours later. After Brexit, she's treated and she's home within three hours. It was disgusting, racist, Mm. hideous, paranoia-inducing rhetoric that we should never, ever forget. And everybody that voted now denies that that was today. So, oh, no, no, it was never about immigrants. It was all about um, sovereignty and these higher principle things. But I don't want to ever forget that these people who put that advert together and who created the posters that said 470 million Turks are waiting to come to the UK. Um, <clears throat> I don't want them to forget. So for me, the quote, you asked me for a quote that said, um, you know, that to, to a powerful quote, I think, you know, whoever tries to sow the wind must be prepared to reap the whirlwind. So the people that have been elected on this wave of emotion now have to deliver. And if they can't deliver, they will be swept away by the same forces that swept them to power. Um, And if you use unprincipled and awful argument and evidence to get you elected, you are opening a door that I think many other countries have opened before that have ended in ways just too terrible to imagine. Um, The author of this quote? uh, So the author comes from... um, comes from the the old testament but it was used by winston churchill interestingly actually to justify the bombing of germany in uh, in the in the, the later 1940s in the war uh, and, uh but whosoever sows the wind must be prepared to reap the whirlwind so if you use dirty tricks to get elected you've got to expect some pretty nasty things to happen as a result of that Well, it's also uh, it's a not, historical yeah it's a bible to quote from the from the old testament of the christian bible all right could you now um could you now recommend us one book that has been particularly inspiring or influential for you yeah i can't was two actually <clears throat> the first one is um the first one is a book called how to argue and win every time by a u.s lawyer called jerry spence It is, uh, you can get it if you Google it, uh, but it's a fantastic um, introduction to some of the things that we've talk, been talking about here. Basically, this is a guy that won some amazing uh, trial victories. He was a defense lawyer. Mm-hmm. Trial victories by using some of these sophist techniques that we've talked about mm. saying that audience you know your jury your audience of 12 people in a in a courtroom actually they are open to a story and if you can build a stronger narrative mm. using some of the things that we've talked about today for that jury then they will do what you want them to do and it's beautifully he wasn't part of the OJ Simpson defense team but a TV program if people want to watch as to how to use rhetoric in a way in an unprincipled way to win 
look at the latest OJ trial of OJ Simpson television series that was created in the US. It's absolutely fantastic. So first one is How to Argue and Win Every Time by Jerry Spence. Second one, mm-hmm. uh, basically The Merchant of Venice by William Shakespeare. Okay. <laughs> because there is a it's about it's about intolerance and hatred and racism and it's about argumentation where this abused Jew Shylock at the in the heart of the play um, is forced to go to court or sorry takes somebody to court and has to defend himself um, against a powerful better educated foe uh, simply with words it's a beautiful beautiful poem and it's by Shakespeare and um, okay. I love Shakespeare well also about argumentation <laughs> yeah there's a you know there, there is a, a piece in the middle where the court case takes on and the arguments that both sides use are really interesting mm. oh very interesting huh? hey Jim you you have told us already many practical things lessons uh, leave us finally with one exercise something practical that you recommend doing it daily or weekly a routine to shine okay well I just think that along with what we've talked about today that the ability to look at the same argument from many different sides helps mm-hmm. you argue stronger. So my tip would be this every month, maybe not every week, but every, every week or every month, choose a story from the newspaper that represents a particular case. For example, mm-hmm. you know, the case for leaving the European union, then think about that case and write the arguments for it. And then look at the case from the opposite point of view mm-hmm. and write the arguments for that. 100% for it, 100% against it, and then write an argument that is balanced. Okay. What Great. are the strengths of it? So just practicing. And I think, again, I think if, if the people that were arguing for um, remaining in the European mm-hmm. Union had done that, they would have realized pretty quickly that they totally misjudged the, the audience. So practice looking at the same issue from many different points of view. It will make you a better arguer. All right. Yeah, sounds like an excellent exercise. Thank you. Thank you very much, Jim. It was your pleasure. pleasure talking with you, uh, telling all your points of view about what happened in 2016 in your also your personal point of view. <laughs> <laughs> so it's pretty fascinating to to hear that. Could you finally tell us how we can learn more about you, how to follow you, what are the best ways for that? Yeah, sure. Well, I'm on Twitter at Impact Tips. Uh, I have a website called jim-harvey.com, and I'm one of the guys, myself, John Zimmer, mm-hmm. um, and uh, Emma Bannister, who I know have both been on your show. We run presentationguru.com together, uh, and it's we, we wanted to create a website where all of the best writers and thinkers and speakers, like your podcast, get a chance to share that, but without selling products or services behind it. So any of those mm-hmm. places, um, uh, I'd love to, you know, to, to, to carry on the conversation. Yes. Fantastic. Yes. That's such a great, um, blog. You already had uh, launched this 2016 presentation. Yeah, Guru. Right. yeah congratulations that's, of course. for that also. It highly recommended for everybody. Oh, that's great. And it, of course, it's, that's another reason why 2016 was a really important year. I should have thought of that earlier, shouldn't I? Yeah, that's good. <laughs> that was one of the good things of 2016. 
Yeah, okay. But what I'll do, what I must do as well is I we will feature your your um podcast on that as well because I think there's I listened to I think six podcasts this week from your um uh from your podcast and I think they're excellent so I'd recommend people listen download them and listen to them lots because they're really good. Thanks a lot. Well, pleasure. Again, a pleasure talking with you, Jim, and okay. all the best. Um yeah, all the best, um Oscar, that's fantastic and uh, have a great 2017. Have a great 2016. Bye-bye. Okay, bye. Thank you for listening to today's episode. Did you like it? Please subscribe to our podcast in iTunes, Stitcher, or visit us at timetoshinepodcast.com. Until next time...